Hello, and welcome to the second episode of The Lion's Share, a podcast series by the PPE Society of King's College London. Today, we will hear three scholars discussing some most controversial contracts, marriage and sex. Dr. Laurie Schrage is a professor of philosophy at Florida International University, Miami, focusing on moral, political, and feminist theory. Dr. David Friedman is an American economist, physicist, legal scholar, and anarcho-capitalist theorist, recently retired from teaching in the law school at Santa Clara University. And Dr. Kaoru Aoyama is a theoretically informed empirical sociologist at Kobe University in Japan, focusing on gender and sexuality, care work, sex work, migration, and trafficking. We're excited to have you joining us here at the Lion's Share. To dip our toes before we dive in, a definition of contract sex as outlined by Dr. Schrage. Um, well, some people use the term sex work uh, to refer to the exchange of sexual services for money among individuals. Uh, this is often what has historically been called prostitution. Um, but sex work is also used as an umbrella term which encompasses a number of market-oriented sexual activities, and these include pornography or exotic dancing. But I've started using the term contract sex rather than sex work because the latter phrase focuses mostly on the provider's activity, that is the one who actually performs sex for money, whereas contract sex focuses on all parties to the contractual agreement, including the customer and in some cases, a facilitator, business owner, or other assistants involved. I think it's a better term because it focuses on not just historically, you know, the problem of fallen women, but um, it focuses more on all parties involved in this kind of transaction. Though he does not agree with claims supporting the criminalization of sex work, Dr. Friedman proposes two economic arguments one could make to support such claims. One is from the conflict between contract sex and the marriage contract, and the other is from, air quotes, the kind of society we want to live in. Dr. Aoyama and Dr. Schrage also share their views on the relationship between the marriage contract and contract sex. There's a interesting article, actually by Akerlof and Yellen, and this is the same Yellen who is about to become the Treasury Secretary, and their explanation is an economic explanation. If you think about a world where sex and babies are joint products, that's basically an ordinary world without contraception or abortion. Furthermore, suppose that while men and women may both want children, women want children more than men do. You then have a market situation where the women in effect are charging for being willing to have sex the willingness of the man to support them, to marry them. And they can get away with do, with, with charging that because there's nobody who's willing to offer better terms to the men. Now you make reliable contraception and abortion easily available. Those women who don't want children can now compete with the ones who do. They can essentially say, well, I expect to be taken out to dinner and treated nicely and all the rest of that, but you don't have to marry me because I don't want children. That reduces the bargaining position, reduces the options of the women who do want children, and then some of them who want children enough end up having children without a husband. So that I would have said the initial error in the old argument was the assumption that most of the children of unmarried women were really unwanted children. Yeah, marriage is a promise to have sex, 
with this partner and only with this partner for good for as long as the duration of the contract. But I mean, sex work is totally different from that. So, I mean, it's, it's against it. That's partly why I like it. I like sex work. Marriage is really conservative, isn't it? And I mean, structurally speaking, upholding capitalist world to reproduce and to define whose child is whose and the child is nurtured and uh, socialized in certain ways in uh, this proper family relationship. And sex work very much disrupts that. Right. Well, one of the reasons some people... um have a traditionally opposed sex work is because it was thought it would weaken people's monogamous marriages and commitment to the family and so on. And uh, we used to have laws against adultery that criminalized adult- in the U.S. I don't know about in, in the U.K., but we've had laws that criminalize adultery. Um, and it can still be, uh, you know, somebody can still be subject to civil penalties for an act of adultery. And by that, I mean, if uh, you might have a weaker position in a divorce and so on. And of course, people are concerned about sex work because it, it does seem to encourage adultery, at least if the customers are married. But again, the question is how much you want the government involved in regulating right, adultery. I, I think if we don't criminalize or regulate adultery, then I, I don't think there's any reason then to uh, regulate sex work or criminalize it for that reason. So that's one explanation. Now, a different explanation, a sort of a more public-spirited explanation, but following on the same mechanism, would be to say what's going on is that both men and women want the kind of society where children are born to stable married couples because that produces a better society. And if that's the case, then you could say, well, all right, because the existence of prostitution makes it harder for women to get men to commit to marriage, Therefore, we'll make prostitution harder by making it illegal. Uh, so that's a, that's an old, it's really the same economics, but a different a different causal explanation. And one of them is the self-interest of the women, and the other is sort of a public-spirited desire of both men and women to have a particular kind of society. So I think both of those make some sense as economic explanations of the laws against against prostitution. I disapprove of those laws essentially on moral grounds, since I believe in individual freedom. But given that economics, I can see uh, why there are arguments uh, in favor of those laws as well as arguments against them, if that makes sense. Next, we will consider different options and perspectives with regards to the decriminalization, legalization and regulation of contract sex, as well as the unique challenges the sex industry presents. So there's a lot of issues involved in um, And one, of course, main issue is whether it should be legal or decriminalized. Decriminalization means we just stop criminally prosecuting people for engaging in sex work and especially the providers, because those who are the ones who have most likely been subject to prosecution, although there are some societies who have imposed what's called the Nordic model that are trying to reverse this and focus more on the customer. But I would argue that these kind of laws just do more harm than good. Arresting and criminally prosecuting and imprisoning women for sex work is very, very disruptive to their lives, very damaging to their health, is likely to subject them to more violence in the form of rape or forced labor. So the first thing we need to do is to protect women's human rights and civil rights 
is not to prosecute them for accepting money to perform a sexual act. Then the second issue is legalization. And that's a different question. That's an economic question. And if you think like about marijuana, right, we can decriminalize marijuana without licensing companies to produce and sell it. Although we obviously are going to license people or companies to do that because we can make sure the products are safer and so on. And, and this is the same question around sex work. We need to think about what forms of economic activity involving sex uh, will be allowed. Uh, will it be brothel work? Will it just be kind of escort work? How large will these enterprises be? Where will they operate? What kind of zoning requirements will we have? What are the age restriction? And interestingly, sex worker rights groups support decriminalization, but they don't want the kinds of regulations that have historically been imposed on them, like registration or mandatory testing, especially for sex workers who are likely not in the course of their work to be exposed to an STD. The regulations have to be appropriate. They shouldn't be dehumanizing or stigmatizing of the people involved. Dr. Aoyama thinks that, due to there being so few protections for sex workers' rights as it currently stands, some regulations in place now do work better than no regulation at all. In Japan, there is a, a law in English would be called uh, what's that? Entertainment businesses law, under which all legal sex workers are regulated. Then they have certain protection for the workers, such as they should be working in certain proper sort of businesses and shops, and owners are responsible to know who they are and what kind of time they work and what kind of clients they take in and so on. So that is actually, in the realistic sense, pragmatic sense, a protection. So I, 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 I wouldn't say that we should abolish all these kinds of regulation. Suppose that Edu had punished prostitutes. That would drive up the price of prostitutes. Driving up the price of prostitutes would reduce not the demand in the economist sense, but the quantity demanded. Now, it may well be that, that for various reasons, it's more practical to impose costs on the customer. That if you think about a prostitute, for example, is where prostitution is illegal, is not going to suffer any reputational damage from getting arrested because she's, she's selling an illegal service. Whereas a customer may well suffer a reputational damage, especially if he's married. So in that sense, it may make, if you're trying to, to reduce prostitution, it may make sense just as a question of who you can more easily target. So I suspect that on the one hand, it's politically easier to harass prostitutes than to harass Johns. But on the other hand, it may be more effective if you do or do it to harass the Johns and the prostitutes. But mm -hmm. there's a separate question, of course, of enforcing the marriage contract. And I can certainly see an argument for some mechanism that's an interesting idea. If you wanted the government to intervene in a way that would have a substantial effect and would to some extent be defensible, have some mechanism so that if I am a married man who goes to a prostitute, that information is available to my wife. Because I am, after all, almost certainly cheating on promises I have made in some sense on a contract that I've made. Prostitution, when the customers are married, is contract violation. Now, it's true that in modern societies, adultery is no longer treated as criminal. So in a sense, we don't really treat that as an enforceable contract. 
Mm -hmm. uh, except in the very limited sense that if there's a divorce litigation, then the fact of adultery becomes evidence for the, 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 the party it was against. Well, I do think the government regulations um, are necessary because, um, first of all, there's some risks involved in the work and also to involve and to, to ensure, for example, that the activities that go on are, you know, fully consensual and aren't exploitative, right? Is the issue really isn't whether we regulate or not, or what it's really whether we need special regula regulations specific to this industry, right? So some sex workers will support regulating the industry, but they just don't want there to be these this extra layer of regulations, like register, you know, the historical one. But um, but we do need to have regulations that might involve, for example, as I said, the age of a person who can get involved in it. Um, many countries, we set the drinking age at 21 because we think people need to be somewhat mature, especially to drink in public. And uh, we could consider the minimum age for all kinds of sex work. We could set the minimum age at 21 rather than 18. And I actually would favor that because a lot of the problems we see are often with young people who get involved, these so-called barely legal young people who have little experience with work and sometimes little experience with sex. And they often tend to be highly desired in the sex industry. Uh, there's a sort of bias in favor of young bodies. Uh, and this is something, of course, of big concern to feminists that it's, you know, this is often involves exploitation of women, especially young women. And uh, we could, of course, address this problem by simply increasing the age at which people can get involved, assuming by the time they're 21, they're a little more mature, they've had more work experience, more sexual experience, and therefore they'd be less likely to be exploited by their co-workers or associates. Uh, so I would favor regulations like this. Um, whether you would have things like mandatory use of condoms, that's very controversial. Not all uh, activities expose people to the risk of communicating an STD, but where they do, surely we want to have condom use, testing, and other kinds of things. But again, if we have these blanket rules, they tend to be resisted. So somebody performing a sexual act where there's not going to be any form of what we might call penetration. There's not going to be a no, there are no body fluids exchanged. A lot of sex work takes place now over the internet. And that's a different kind of sex work with different kinds of risks than somebody who goes on an out call. And uh, there's a legal theorist named Adrian Davis who's talked about geographies of sex work. And she's, I, I agree with her that we have to develop regulatory tools and, and regulatory. Uh, you know, kind of schemes that are specific to the type of risks that, that each type of work involves. So one question is what role do men play, right, in general in the sex industry? There is John's and also often as Pimp. One of the things we find is where sex work is legal, uh, there's less of a role for, for often male pimps. It might be women involved in organizing businesses among themselves, some kind of consortium. But women, where it's legal, women don't need to hire protection as much, or they're not, certainly they, they don't have to worry about being arrested if they're you know, following the legal rules. So, um, so whether or not there are gonna be um, you know, men involved and how they're gonna be involved depends upon obviously the conditions of the work. 
And so we want to create conditions of work that empower the workers. And I would say whether the workers are women or men or trans or non-binary, whatever their gender is, we want uh, provisions and regulations that empower the workers so that they have some control over the conditions of work. And by that, I mean, they should have control over which clients they take, how many clients they take, uh, what forms of protection they use, what kinds of security they need, what kinds of compensation they want. They should have control over all of those things. And, you know, they're not going to get control unless we make the work decriminalized and we don't treat it the work itself and the people who participated in it as criminal. And then we legalize it and have regulations that empower them. And in some conditions of work that might empower sex workers is for them to form you know, labor unions. Um, it, it, that would also protect sex workers. And again, I think if we, of course, historically, women have mostly been the providers and men have mostly been the customer, but this is actually changing quite a bit. And if we again use that larger sense of sex work, we see this in the pornography industry where more women are getting involved as producers and directors and they're marketing uh, pornography that's oriented, you know, it's aimed at a female audience or, not, or a mixed audience, not just a male audience. And there's some women who work in the pornography industry who are making what they consider to be feminist pornography. And so um, this is going to change, you know, who are the consumers and, and who are the providers. We see this to some extent with erotic dancing and um, you know, the provision of personal sexual services. But, um, but again, these, we have to change cultural norms, right, about what forms of sexual what, you know, sexuality or women feel comfortable participating in? Um, yes, I mean, in the, in the extent that it depends on, of course, how you define pornography, but there's certainly um, erotic films, erotic art that is, you know, very much has a feminist sensibility and in which uh, women are not objectified in, in horrible ways and in which um, it may even celebrate their sexuality. And of course, one of the things we want to, would want to make sure of in any type of sex work, whether it's pornography or erotic dancing or the provision of sexual services, is that it's fully uh, consensual, right? That someone isn't being forced into it or being deceived and, as to what they're agreeing to or being, um, you know, making the decision under difficult circumstances and being coerced, whether they're on drugs or... Uh, in a position where they have no other options, right? So we would want to make sure the person, the people involved, are not what Deborah Satz would call weak agents, right? They're they have strong agency, and to have strong agency, you need to have a certain, you know, a, a sufficient amount of information material to the decisions you're making, right? So you need to be somewhat informed, not deceived. You need to make sure you're, you need to be in a position of relative power. Relative, you know, relative to the people you're negotiating with. You need to be competent in the sense of have a level of maturity and be cogent and you know, sober enough to make good decisions. And if people are strong agents, right, their agency hasn't been weakened because they're destitute or they're too young or whatever, if they're strong agents and they, and they, we don't, you know, they've given what we think is legitimate or genuine consent, 
then I don't think we have any reason to question, you know, their involvement, right? But that if is a big if, right? Being a strong, most of us aren't really even strong agents when we make decisions to buy real estate or cars, right? We're emotional. We don't have all the information we need. The people selling us something often have more information than we have. So it takes a lot to actually be a strong agent. And uh, and a lot of conditions have to be satisfied. But I think we should be thinking about how do we empower women? How do we strengthen their agency and their positions of power from which they make decisions as opposed to taking these decisions away from them? Again, it depends on where the industry operates. So I would think where the industry is illegal that we're, where it's a criminal activity, you're going to see more predatory practices because the industry is going to have to operate uh, out of view, right? There won't be outside independent third-party observers who can ensure that a contract is a legitimate contract or consent is legitimate, uh, is required to make sure people are working in healthy surroundings and in secure surroundings. So if we want to, um, in any industry, and I would say this is true of agriculture, manufacturing, if we don't want to see sweatshops or horrible conditions and on uh, you know farms, mass industrial farms, we need to make sure that uh, you know young people, farm workers, you know uh, factory workers, uh, that they their labor rights are respected. And one, of the, one, one kind of right we all have is to exit a work situation. You know, work should not be forced. Even if you've made a contract, you can break as a worker. You may have to, you may suffer consequences. You might find it hard, hard to get hired again, but your work should not never be coerced or forced. And you need a certain amount of power over your working condition. There also, again, have to be restrictions on, you know, the age requirements, right? Who can, who, what age should people, we don't want child labor. This is where in the sex industry, I think we need to really think about whether the age should just be 18 or whatever the age is for most forms of work. We might want to make it a little bit higher to avoid uh, predatory practices. Most of the abuses that take place often are against younger women who are inexperienced. And this is true wherever you have a power imbalance. And, and this is not just something women face. Um, the, the one case where women often hire male sex workers, uh, when women uh, travel in formerly colonized countries, and w- like white women, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Heading South, which is about, um, it's a group of white Canadian women who go to Haiti and hire the local men as their you know, vacation boyfriends. And here you just have a huge, huge difference of economic power and opportunity, which facilitates these kind of systems. And and it shows throughout the film the way these young men are exploited by the the women who travel down and hire them as their escorts while they're on, on vacation. So whenever you have a huge power or economic differential between the employer and the person who's being employed, um, whether it's based on race, past colonial relationships, or gender relationships, there's the, um, you know, there's the possibility of, of exploitation. Finally, Dr. Aoyama and Dr. Schrag provide insights into the gender roles present and perpetuated in the sex industry and the role of feminist theory and practice in addressing these roles. Yeah, it's, it's believed to be true that 
majority of sex workers are women, self-acknowledged women, and majority of clients are heterosexual men seeking out women's services. However, it's problematic to think that's all the story. Actually, there are male sex workers for both female and male clients and transgender sex workers. Well, they've been there for as long as the history of sex work itself and as long as women have been involved as sex workers. Feminist discourse against sex work has been that it's wrong because it is male sexual domination over women, generally speaking, and it's not only commercial transaction, it's structural issue. And those that means societies that allow sex work to happen is underpinning the structure of men's domination over women overall. So they're against it. I mean, that's uh, discrimination against women and exploitation of women's sexuality. And there are uh, other sort of job opportunities and that reproduces that kind of relationships by through uh, sex work because, you know, women need this work because they don't have other opportunities and men utilizes it because they have that power and because of that, that continues to be like that. That's a basic sort of, uh, I would say, radical feminist theory against sex work. But there is a good reason for it. I do take, I I do have sympathy with it. However, it, it has a problematic side. For male sex workers, for instance, they have been invisible because of this salary and because number-wise, they are minority. Both this numerical fact and feminist discourse and discourse against female sex workers selling sexual service to men, highs male sex workers. Then that means male sex workers can't seek help if they have troubles, when it's invisible, they don't have any rights to assert. They don't have any social recognition about sex workers' rights movement as well. They are not considered as a main body subjects of that. So that's a big problem about this theory about men buying women sexually. So what I would say to radical feminists is I don't see that sex work itself um, is this is the main contributor to the loss of uh, autonomy uh, for women. It's the patriarchal structures themselves, right? It's not by it's not by abolishing prostitution that we're going to drive a big stake into patriarchy, but rather we have to think about all these family structures, marriage structures, and work structures and just general societal rules that keep women under the control of men, Uh, male members of their family, male bosses in the workforce, um, husbands who have more power over them because of the legal arrangements of marriage. 
if we undermine those and then obviously protect workers more and in all forms of work, then I think women you know, will have a lot more autonomy. I don't think prostitution is something that is simply an effect of patriarchy or is caused by patriarchy, which some radical feminists do. Um, I think that if you had a society in which women had something like equal rights, if we can imagine that, I don't think we've accomplished that yet, um, I think we'd still see a very kind of vibrant uh, sex businesses or sex industry. It would just look very different. The gender of the customers and workers would be different. The working conditions, the kind of services and products sold might be very different. So I don't think the sex industry is, is in any way dependent on patriarchy for its existence, but it is dependent on patriarchy for the forms it takes. So many sex workers already consider themselves feminists and have often been disappointed in the feminist movement for not recognizing the ways in which they are feminists and for recognizing their significant uh, feminist political aims, especially decriminalizing sex work. And when, when sex work is criminalized, women are subject to more abuses, especially poor women and women of color in the U.S. Because if a woman happens to be in a high crime neighborhood where prostitution occurs and she has condoms in her purse, she could be arrested for loitering or for um, you know, being suspected of being, you know, tending to commit an act of prostitution. White women, especially middle-class white women, are rarely arrested, even if they go on in the internet looking for sugar daddies. They rarely get arrested for sex work, but a poor woman of color in a high crime area of a city could be arrested for sex work. And it's just a form of harassment women face where there are laws against sex work. So this is a feminist issue, that one that feminists should care about, not just, fem you know, not just sex workers, but all feminists should care about the fact that laws that uh, criminalize sex work affect all women, but especially uh, low-income women and women of color who happen to frequent the neighborhoods that are high crime or where sex work uh, often uh, is, occurs because it's often kept out of you know, more wealthier areas. So this is an, you know, it's an issue if you are concerned not just with women's equality with men, but women's equality generally among women of different races and ethnicities, then we need to be focused on this issue of decriminalizing sex work. But it's not only that. I mean, it's, not, it's actually um, the structure is much more complicated. It's not male-female issue, maybe from the start. It's often the rich and the poor, and globally, it's either if they want to have a decent work abroad with decent income. I'm, I'm interested in migrant sex workers, particularly. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I went to Thailand as well, to research about migration combined with sex work and trafficking sometimes. But, you know, if there's no uh, discrepancies between the uh, rich and poor globally, they might not migrate that much in that circumstances towards the sex industry that is not very regulated, which means sometimes very unsafe. And they know it nowadays anyway. 30 years ago, they might have not known the dangers 
but they know now. I mean, it's uh, information technology era, isn't it? Um, they still do it, even if it's unsafe. Well, okay, they aim for high risk and high return economically, but also they aim for better life. And, you know, it's better, not only me, but a lot of researchers who do sex work migration research would agree with me that those men and women, transgender sex workers move and do sex work because the conditions are better than working in the garment factory, for instance, like working for Nike or H&M or Forever 21 or uh, Zara factories are worse conditions. And they tend to employ these same sort of women from rural areas with less education. Then they pay really, really meager, meager wages for working like 14 hours a day from age of 15 to I don't know how long. They are fed up with it. They want to do whatever better, which happens to be uh, often the sex industry because it pays better because of the risk and because it's sex. You know, I mean, moral argument doesn't work really because that doesn't pay them. And they have more freedom in that case. They have more future prospects. They have more money to pay for their university fees or for their children's university fees than working in Zara factory. So that's a global gap between um, in the world making them move within sex industry more than anything else. So if you think about global relationship, um, you'd maybe more sort of global economical relationship more, you'd be very more sort of sympathetic about it. And, you know, they force sometimes them to work in like at the sewing machines and other uh, physical labor and it's much worse conditions. So it's a, for some people, it's a better choice. And that's it for our second episode of The Lion's Share. We hope this episode has given you a new perspective and a few things to think about. Thank you very much to both our guests and our team, Simeon Castello for his jingles, Dong Delia Liu for helping me in production and Mina Aries for helping me with audio editing. Remember to follow us on Instagram at KCLPP for updates on our next episodes. My name's Alice Palmer and I've been your host. Thanks for joining us on The Lion's Share.